All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast brought to you by the Coastal Conservation Association. In this podcast, Orange County CCA President Scott Bandy and I sit down with Carrie Jelpe and Kirk Blood. Carrie and Kirk work for Texas Parks and Wildlife out of the Coastal Fisheries Marine Field Station in Port Arthur, Texas. There are two members of the team there that are affectionately known as the Lakers. The Lakers collect fisheries data, interact with the public, and conduct research projects in and around the Sabine Lake ecosystem. But before we get started with this episode, I have a couple of announcements to make. First off, I wanted to let everyone know that the Gulf Council, which is the body that is responsible for managing our marine federal fisheries, is considering transferring uncaught recreational king mackerel or kingfish quotas from the commercial from the recreational sector and shifting them to the commercial sector simply because the recreational sector is not catching all of their quota and the commercial sector is so if you're opposed to this sort of fisheries allocation shift you have an opportunity to make public comment either online or at one of many public meetings that are being held uh, this week the easiest thing to do is to just google Gulf Council comment form, and you can submit your statements online. You can also attend any of the meetings that are being held this week, and there are two being held Monday night, December 5th, from 6 to 9 p.m. One is at the Hampton Inn in Port Aransas. Another one is at the Hilton Garden Inn in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Tuesday, December 6th, again from 6 to 9 p.m., There's one being held at the Hilton on Galveston Island and another at the Renaissance Mobile Riverview Plaza Hotel in Mobile, Alabama. And finally, the last meetings are being held Wednesday, December 7th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Marriott in Houma, Louisiana and at the Hilton Garden Inn in Panama City, Florida. So those are your opportunities to speak up on Amendment 29. Uh, Secondly, if you haven't listened to the podcast on the San Jacinto Waste Pit Superfund site, then I would encourage you to do so. The EPA has extended the public comment period from originally from November 28th. Well, now we have until January 12th to make comments, so you still have a little over one month to submit your comments online. Uh, Lastly, I just wanted to thank everyone that's reached out to us and supported the show. Folks seem to have really enjoyed the flounder talk with Wayne Pettigo and Kevin Burns. Wayne recently sent over a really cool video of how a flounder jaw a jaw opens up while feeding. And we're going to post that up on the CCA Texas website. So you can just go to CCA Texas slash blog and check it out from there. Uh, Wayne, great work, man. Thank you for sending that to us. We appreciate it. Um, and, yeah, we appreciate all the love, folks. Y'all have uh, been sharing the podcast and we appreciate that keep sharing it with your friends family and co-workers leave us those reviews online on itunes soundcloud stitcher or tune in radio and you can also email us at info at ccatexas.org all right that's enough of the rambling thank you again for listening and here we go with carrie kirk and scott all right folks welcome to the coastal advocacy adventures podcast we are here in Port Arthur, Texas on Pleasure Island and have the 
have the honor and uh, pleasure to be with uh, Kirk Blood, Scott Mandy, and Carrie Gelpy. Did I say that right? Uh, Gelpy, actually. Gelpy. Yeah. Gelpy. All right, so let's start with let's start with introductions. Kirk, who are you? I'm Kirk Blood, a fish and wildlife technician here in Port Arthur, Sabine Lake. Been here for about 22 years now. Seen a lot of things come and go, but uh, it's a it's a great place to be. It's a good system. So you've been with Parks and Wildlife for 22 years. You said 22 years. 22 years. And it's actually my second career. I was a late bloomer. I didn't start till I was 41. So I'm I'm right on the verge of retiring in a couple of years. You mean being eligible or actually leaving? I, no, actually leaving. <laughs> what What did you do before this? I was a I worked in a lot of commercial fisheries. I I've been a commercial shrimper. My dad and I had a uh, charter boat that did dive charters and red snapper fishing. I worked commercial shrimping. Um, ran crew boats in the oil field for 10, 15 years. So you've got a lot of experience on the water. Yes. Yeah. Been with it my whole my whole career, basically. Uh, even from the time I was a kid, I was a frustrated marine biologist. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to I want to – I am interested. I'm always interested in how people, like, chose their career paths and how they end up where they are now. So we'll get to that in a second because I okay. think that's, that's always an interesting story. Scott? I'm Scott Bandy. I'm the Orange County CCA chapter president. I'm also on the state and national board for CCA, as well as the chapter committee uh, there with the state of Texas. Uh, I live in Orange, Texas. Uh, I've got a wife and two children. Uh, I've always loved the outdoors, loved the water. Uh, grew up on on the Sabine River uh, in Rayburn, and as as I grew older, I, I learned a little bit about Sabine Lake, and I've been fishing Sabine Lake for about 20 years now. So, a little bit of a uh, little bit of history there. What uh, what's your career? What do you? Uh, I'm a machinist by trade. I work for Dupont. Okay. Here in Orange. I remember the first time I met you. It was on the water. Yeah, sure was. I think you were with Chester, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. We were fi- collecting fish for the hatchery. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember. I think you saw like you figured out what we were doing, and. Uh, you said, "Hey, can I help?" Yeah. Basically, yeah, I remember that we were over on the Louisiana side around, uh, I think it was Big Three in that area there, just north of Willow. So it's kind of, kind of been involved ever since, you know. And and that, you know, that's something that I love. I love the flounder fish, but also love the conservation side of it as well, and uh, preserving that fishery and other fisheries for our future. So we may or may not have been stealing Louisiana's fish for the Texas hatchery. <laughs> we, we were in the vicinity of that. <laughs> in the general area. Probably a similar genetic makeup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mr. Genetics. <laughs> Who is Carrie? Uh, uh, Carrie Jelpy. I'm the ecosystem leader here at Texas Parks and Wildlife in Port Arthur, uh, Sabine Lake Marine Lab. Um, I've been here just a little bit over a year. Started uh, uh in October of 2015. Um, originally from Louisiana. I'm a Louisiana guy. Uh, went to college at LSU. I got my degree in biology with a, a marine concentration there and went on to get my PhD at uh, the Department of Oceanography and Coastal Science. Um, did a lot of my, uh, my graduate work looking at uh, the ecosystems associated with uh, near shore uh, sandy shoals. Uh, which were uh, uh, 
attractive to uh, many entities for coastal restoration projects. Um, and when we were out there, we, we found a lot of interesting things, um, uh, not the least of which was that they uh, support large aggregations of spawning blue crabs, which was a finding that people didn't really realize that blue crabs travel uh, 20, 30, 40 miles offshore and, and concentrate in large areas uh, uh, and, and uh, stay there for uh, long periods of time. So uh, I used that work to uh, uh, get some funding to look at blue crab migratory dynamics and that's what I was doing whenever um, this job became available and uh, I've been here and I'm enjoying myself. So I think um, we could probably do the whole afternoon on crabs then uh, <laughs> with your expertise. How large areas when you, you say they, they congregate in in these uh, for these mass spawning events mm -hmm. or I guess it's spawning events. Yeah, it is. How, spawning like, what size events. areas are you referring to? Uh, the Ship Shoal, which is uh, the Sandy Shoal south of uh, Terrebonne Bay, is about mm, 25 kilometers long, and it's about mm, 5 kilometers wide. And then uh, Tiger and Trinity Shoal are southwest of Atchafalaya Bay, and they're approximately the same size. Uh, these areas are remnants of uh, what used to be coastal Louisiana. Uh, so the Mississippi River used to dump its sediment out there. When okay. stream switching occurred, uh, it, it, it became... Um, sediment starved and eventually those areas became barrier islands and then sunk down below so what what depth are they at now uh the shallowest is it's probably about three meters about about 12 feet okay um, so not terribly deep no it's not terribly deep mm -mm. no it's an interesting system wow you always um I always feel guilty when I catch a crab that's, you know, it has the eggs. Holding the egg, eggs. <laughs> I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Let it go real quick. I feel yeah. so bad. Yeah, we haven't been catching many of those around here lately. Uh, that's that's a that's a, an issue that we're so trying to look at right now is the lack of, of uh, spawning uh, sponge crabs. They, they're, they're is, you think that's just a local thing? or is Specifically, just talking with the guys here, uh, they used to catch a lot more sponge crabs in the near shore gulf and um, and they've they've not been recently um, the blue crab stock in general along the Texas coast has been in decline for the past fifteen twenty years yeah I remember always hearing it, it was always one of those things that came up during um, you know the um, annual meetings that the biologists mm -hmm. ecosystem biologists would have it's like blue crab was always on the agenda i mean there's there wasn't necessarily something that was going to be taken action on, but it's always seems like it's a recurring conversation that that's happening amongst coastal fishery staff because they are concerned about it. It's yeah, it's not just Texas; it's uh, on the East Coast as well. Chesapeake Bay has been in a serious decline for decades, uh, starting in the early '90s. Um, Louisiana, there, there's indications that they're also uh, seeing a decline in their stock. So. Um, trying to figure out why. Uh, I mean, do you think some of that could be attributed to um, habitat issues? Sure. Specifically oysters. I mean, do you think those two oyster beds, I mean. Um, the degradation of the yeah. oyster beds. And sure, the, you know, oyster, oyster reefs are a good habitat for crabs. Um, but it, it's hard to pinpoint a single a single cause at, at, at this time. Uh, if 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 we knew exactly what the, the yeah, reason it wouldn't was, be a problem. Then if we knew <laughs> we'd be able to solve it. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly it it it, it's, it it could have something to do with shifts in uh, in the environment, uh, anthropogenic influences, things like that. Yeah. 
Did you go straight from, um, you know, you said you LSU, you got your bachelor's and PhD, you your master's, you went straight to straight on PhD through. Training. Yeah, oh, I was wow. gonna get my master's degree, but the the project kept expanding, and uh, they're like, well, just, this is PhD work you're yes. doing here, so might yeah, as well. <laughs> exactly. If folks want to find out about that work, how could they uh, how could they look look you up? Uh, you could go into Google Scholar and 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 uh, Google my name or. Uh, the title of my dissertation is uh, uh, Function and Diversity of the Ship Trinity Tiger Shoal Complex with Emphasis on Macro and Fauna and Spawning Blue Crabs, Kalanectus sapidus, if you really want to. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> His last name is spelled G-E-L-P-I. G-E-L-P-I. You want some more information. Good stuff. That's good to hear. All right, so... We alluded to it a second ago. Um, Kurt, start with you. You've always been on the water your whole life. You know, grew up um, close to the coast. Uh, what what actually drew you to parks and wildlife and, and the role that you have as, as a fish and wildlife technician? Well, I was I was working offshore, and I wasn't really happy with my job. I they had moved off the boats and moved on to production platforms and wasn't really trained for the job. I was just it was just a job. And so I decided to to look around and see if there was some place where I could volunteer and and find out if there were jobs that suited me. And I came and talked to Jerry Mambretti here and he said, "Sure, we can always use volunteers." I volunteered here doing different jobs. And I'd had experience in a lot of commercial activities, which sewing nets, running gill nets, shrimp trawls, and uh, found that it, I liked the work. And six months later, he called me. I was on the platform. He says, hey, do you want a job? <laughs> I said, when's the next plane out of here? That next doesn't happen anymore. Right. You know, that's... Uh yeah, I, it, I don't see that happening in, in, in the department anymore. Um, but you did the right thing. You start, you know, you volunteered and got to know people, right. which is critical these days. Um, Scott, you've been in CCA for how long? Uh, I've been an active CCA president for about eight years. Uh, before that, I was a member but wasn't active. Um, I say that I didn't attend the banquets. I didn't attend meetings on a regular basis. Uh, pretty much joined because of the star tournament in the summertime uh-huh. and when they opened the started the chapter in orange uh i attended those first few scoping meetings uh was on the board the first year our president stepped down and uh, i was asked to take over then as president so and so how long have you been president uh about eight years eight years yeah. yeah so why do you i mean why do you volunteer and and spend so much of your personal time on on something that you know, you know, you don't get a paycheck from right. it. You, well, you, you start know, to see it, the rewards. I guess it goes back to being conservation minded and, and wanting this resource to be here for my kids and their kids. Uh, you know, it started for me with the flounder uh, and, and helping you and Chester out and, and Chester starting his thing with the flounders. And uh, especially when I was, was told you guys were going to start trying to get them to reproduce to where you could release broodstock back in the environment. You know, that is critical. I think it's what's keeping our 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 estuaries the way they are with the fish we have is what Texas Parks and Wildlife does and has done 
to keep that brood stock there. So I, I see it as a way of helping. It's something I enjoy doing as far as fishing. Uh, I, I tell everybody all the time, hey, my therapist called. I got to go. Uh, <laughs> matter of fact, the boat's hooked up today. So, uh, you know, we're going to take a trip this afternoon. But uh, it's just one of those things I love doing. And it's, it's so why not do what you love and, and, and help out too at the same time? You're always catching fish. At least that's the way it seems <laughs> on social media. Well, What's the deal with the bass? Uh, well, you know, with all the freshwater runoff we've had from uh, Toledo Bend, uh, our bass in the Sabine River, Cow Bio, and some of the other bios, our bass populations have really taken off. Uh, plus, with the new lower limits of 12 inches, it makes it kind of uh, an eye-opener to, to catch a bass or two. Uh Especially when you can, you know, if you do catch three or four that are uh, legal limit keeping size. And I grew up eating bass. I love them fried. So uh, why not keep a few for the fry every once in a while? But, uh, yeah, I, I had a pretty good expedition yesterday. Went out yeah, for a did. couple hours. And I lost count at about 15. And, <laughs> and they're they're feeding on the shad just like everything else is. And you turn that school on and, and they bite for 15, 20-minute periods. So I just enjoy it. And it's a topwater bite. So. Um, yeah, what were you? I was throwing a yellow magic popar. Okay. Uh, bleeding shad color, just fishing around structure with the tide moving in real hard. And once you turned them on, you could see them. I'd have three or four or five fish follow one back to the boat every time that I had them hooked. So wow. it, that pattern's pretty much been working for me at least, uh, probably since about mid, mid June. And I found them by accident and yeah, I, I've got it in my blood that if I'm getting a topwater bite, I'd rather go throw a topwater than throw a jig for redfish or flounder. So, yeah. And the bird activity on the lakes hasn't been that great on the north end. So I live half a mile from the boat ramp, and where I'm fishing, I don't even have to start my motor up. I control the motor right to where I fish. So uh, <laughs> it kind of makes it nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Great. That's good stuff. And, Kerry, you know what? what influences did you have in your life to kind of make you pursue your – you know your your career well your degree first and then your your career like oh, what, do you, I, what do you do what you do <laughs> i've always you know i'm from louisiana like i said i grew up eating you know crabs and crawfish and shrimp so uh and, and fishing uh the bayous um, we always took our vacations to the coast we'd go to florida uh you know we went, took some trips to galveston when i was a kid i just always have loved the water and uh, you know, just decided to make it my life. Did you work in in the field at all before? Um, you know, during during uh, college and and postgraduate work. Sure. Yeah. I um, uh, I, I spent some time down at Lumcon. Uh, the Lumcon is the the Louisiana University Marine Consortium. It's basically the the marine lab on the coast of Louisiana. So I, I did some work down there. Um, uh, as an undergrad, I worked in a in a, a, a benthic ecology lab, looking at what they call myofauna, which is the very small um, invertebrates that live in the in the sediment. Um, so, yeah, I've, for for many years now, I've been working in and around and playing in and around the, yeah. the aquatic uh, environments of uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Grew up fishing. Sure. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, it's it's neat. I I'm just fascinated um, how experiences in your you know your younger years during your formative years play a role in you know what kind of an adult you are, what careers you choose, and uh, how you relate to people. So I'm always 
That's why I always bring it up because it's I, fascinating. I remember my father saying, what are you doing out there? We came to swim. I said, I'm down here looking at the fish. <laughs> <laughs> I was under the water more than I was on top of the water. Kirk put together his – I'm embarrassing. He put together his own his own ID guide at, at, at a very young age. He, he What's the story? You typed out the <laughs> – On the old royal typewriter, typed out 30,000 fish names with with – latin names out beside all organized when i was 13 years old are you joking i'm not kidding you on an old royal typewriter <laughs> do you still have that yes i still have it oh my. you should bind it <laughs> i mean that's cool. gonna be a treasure one day yeah. <laughs> that's pretty but, awesome yeah I've, I've always been amazed by that and what do i do now in my off time i go fishing i find new ways to cook fish i raise fish in aquariums I raise fish and corals. What size aquariums do you have? I've got a 55 and a 300 gallon that I take care of for the Sabine Pass Independent School District. So I, it's actually my tank and my corals. It's just, it's in just a, there. 300 gallons, no joke. I mean, that's a lot of labor. Yeah, that's it's a lot of work, but it's I love it. Yeah, we had, uh, well, they still do. Sea Center has a couple of, not quite 300 gallons. I think they're 200, but... Yeah, that's work. Yeah, that's work. You can't just neglect that. I mean, you got to stay on top of it. And it's so. it's a lot of learning involved with it too. I mean, you're constantly reading, researching, trying to keep everything in a closed system. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a little bit about what you, uh, Carrie and Kirk, what y'all what y'all do for parks and wildlife. So um, we're here at the fill station, in Pleasure Island, and um, you guys have the the task or the charge of taking care of the Sabine Lake ecosystem for coastal fisheries. Um, do a lot of different things. Not every day is the same. Interact with the public, go out on your own sampling, spend a lot of time on the water. So just Kirk, why don't you start us off? What is it like to be a fish and wildlife technician up on, on Sabine Lake? Well, you better get used to early mornings unscheduled weeks because it's a lot of our stuff is weather dependent if we're going to go in the gulf we we want the best weather we can get so things aren't dangerous um, it's a lot of hard work you're going to get dirty you're going to be wading through the water sometimes in not too good of conditions i can remember coming back from some sampling trips we pulled the trawl up on the back of the boat and by the time we got back to the to the dock the net was frozen to the deck <laughs> so it's it's not always the greatest conditions but if you love it it's it's what you love to do um carrie why don't you why don't you kind of explain some of the different type of samples you guys take and and uh, um the reasoning behind that and uh the importance sure of that um, so we're part of a, a larger sampling effort that's uh, spread out along the entire Texas coast and has um, been going on for approximately 40 years now. So we have this long-term data set. Uh, we can look at time series data. It's really important if you're studying the population dynamics of the different species in our, in our various base systems, uh, which is ultimately the goal to monitor these, these, uh, these fish populations. Uh, what we do, um, we have a, a, us and seven other bay systems along the coast. 
Uh, we go out uh, bi-monthly um, and we do uh, bag sayings. And these guys do most of this this work. Uh, the bag sayings. Um, we do uh, bay trawls, um, oyster dredges for the systems that have oyster reefs. Um, we do um, uh, golf trawls. Uh, twice a year, we um, we have what they call gillnet season, which we're, we've just finished up yesterday. Uh, we go out and we we put it, we string uh, gillnets uh, perpendicular to the to the, the shore, and uh, we go out and. Uh, so we, we gather all these organisms together from the various sampling techniques, and we take measurements. Uh, we count them. We identify them. Uh, Kirk is one of our, our ace taxonomists here. He can tell you pretty much anything that swims in the water with great accuracy. Um, and we, um, we, we, we take that data, and it goes through a rigorous process of, um, of editing. Um, like quality control. And very serious quality control effort here uh, to make sure we get the best possible data. And then that goes into this, this data set that I was talking about. Um, and it's available for uh, biologists, um, for anyone who's, who's interested really, to, to take. And um, you, know, you can ask really interesting questions uh, uh, about, about uh, the different ecosystems. Um, aside from gathering the organisms, we also take environmental data. Uh, we take uh, you know things like water temperature, salinity readings, um, uh, dissolved oxygen content, uh, turbidity, the clarity of the water. Uh, so, with these different environmental variables, along with the biological data, you can um, observe trends and try to. Uh, the idea is to try to predict, you know, uh, how populations will respond to changes in the environmental conditions. So. Uh, that's that's basically what we do. <laughs> Let me I'll back back uh, go back a little bit. Um, so you mentioned uh, the ways y'all sample uh, for aquatic organisms, and so you have Gulf trawl, mm -hmm. bay trawl, mm -hmm. uh, bag seine, which is pulled in the bay, mm -hmm. gillnet, mm -hmm. and benthic trawl or benthic sled or. No, we we, um, we do bay trawls and golf trawls, which is the, the it's the same gear, but um, it's just the bays we have. Um, so each system is separated into different grids. You can see in the the map behind you, and um, uh, so they're randomly sampled. Uh, uh, they're chosen I mean, before we go out there uh, to try to uh, encompass the entire area that w we will be sampling. Um, so we they have bay trawls, which are just inside the bays and lake in our system. Um, and then the gulf trawls, which extend nine nautical miles offshore and then 13 uh, nautical miles uh, east and 13 nautical miles west from the, the inlet into okay. the system. Um, of those, I guess the m most physically demanding are bag stains and gillnets. Is that... Yeah, accurate. Yeah, I, would say. I, I would say that's pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the early mornings come in, uh, mostly for gillnets, or is it the same if you're going out to pull a trawl? I mean, is it? Depends on golf trawls. We'll usually leave pretty early because we have a long, that's a 12 to 14 hour day. Yeah. So depending on the time of the year, you want to be back. We can't sample after sunset. So. You have to get this done in the daytime hours, according to our protocols. Okay. 
So you want as much is that, time is as that, you can that's get. just the protocol. Is is um, I guess do you, do we know the reason behind that or it could safety be safety issue? It could be safety issues or it just to make sure that everything is done. Is yeah. the same mm-hmm. consistency yeah. you it's want standardization yeah. yeah that's right so you can see trends over time and you want to keep things as, as similar as possible are y'all able to see trends as there or or you know changes in in fisheries just by doing your samples and not going back i mean just like anecdotally it's like oh man this things aren't right this spring something's off i mean do you kind of know that as you're we can doing see it? it seasonally we can when i like myself i've been here 22 years i'll come to our ecosystem biologist terry stelly and i'll say terry can you go back and look at the data i'm not seeing purple crabs anymore where did the purple crabs go and when did they start declining and he'll go look in the data and say you're right you know we're not seeing these in our samples anymore mm-hmm. and we can start looking yeah. or yeah Proposed questions. And redfish is never a problem, right? You've got redfish no, coming out we, of here. We can walk on the redfish. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, it, thanks in large part to uh, to the stocking efforts. Yeah, we, well, the guys would always tell me is like they're, they'd come across someone and they were releasing redfish. And you, know, you guys were like waving your arms, no more redfish. <laughs> Bring us some trout or Send flounder. Trout. We'll take Send those. Trout. <laughs> Stop the stop it with the redfish. And now I'm starting to say send flounder. And there I, you go. Yeah. And we'll get to flounder in a minute. All uh, right. Hopefully. Um, I, I still want to talk about Sabine Lake a little bit. Are you guys? Is there any? Are there any current issues that you're seeing on the lake that you want people to be aware of, or things going along pretty smoothly right now? Uh, things are going along pretty smoothly. I mean, we've had this recent uh, freshwater flush that you know uh, several actually and that that shifts the the system a little bit um it highlights how unique this system is because we have this constant flow of fresh water and then you have the the ocean um and, and there have been times just to show you how unique it is there have been times where uh say the 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 freshwater flow coming down so being in the natures or down but uh, you'll have a high flow coming down the Mississippi River. So you'll have actually fresher water out in, in the nearshore Gulf than you have inside the lake. Um, we see a real mix of, uh, of species, the community there. Um, we've, we've caught, uh, uh, just recently, we've caught a, a sunfish and a bass in the same area that just a couple of weeks prior we were catching Spanish mackerel. Wow. So it's a real <laughs> shift. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a unique unique area. Um, so um, there there's you know the, no no real major issues that uh, that as far as things that are bad, but um, uh, it just it's, it's a unique system. It's always changing. It is very changing. Scott, system. are you seeing anything? Just being on the water fishing? You know, like I have. Every day? You know, I have. Uh, I was looking back the other day. Uh, I log my trips by pictures, obviously, because uh, of social media. But also keep a, a, a stick there at the there at the house that I use and that I put them on. And I was looking back through them. And in uh, in the early spring, I caught a stripe a hybrid bass up in uh, East Pass. I also caught ten trout that same day. 
So it was kind of ironic, you know. You think about it, I'm sitting here catching trout, then all of a sudden towards the end of my trip I catch this hybrid, and I thought I had a, a redfish. I thought I'd hooked yeah. a redfish. Throwing a swim bait, swimming along the bottom, and this fish hits. He pulls like a redfish, and all of a sudden he comes up, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And he was about four and a half, five pounds. It was a decent nice. fish. Yeah. So, you know, it was one of those weird trips. But, yeah, I mean, I've seen more. We've seen the bass increase. Uh, we've seen the speck move south or move into deeper water. Uh, to stay where that saltier water's at, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, that's just – I just think it comes with the time, with what we have coming, what we see. And you you adapt your fishing to that. You know, if I know the trout are down south, I'm going to trailer down south or I'm going to run run the intercoastal down and fish those deeper pockets that are holding fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Sabine Lake's pretty neat in that regard. I mean, it's not unique. Because the other bays, you'll get you'll be able to catch bass or other right. freshwater species, but it just seems more highlighted. Because, like you said, Carrie, you just got a source of fresh water from both both ends of the of the lake. Aside from the the, the dynamics, uh, the salinity dynamics, we also one thing that does make it unique is the oyster reef that we have in the southern end of Sabine Lake. Um, it's it's not been commercially harvested for decades. I, I think you know, I've heard like 60 years it's been since the last time they yeah. anyone has drug, you know, commercially uh, an oyster dredge or, or taken oysters from, from this reef. Uh, it has areas that have uh, relief, you know, the up and down uh, of, you know, 10, 15 feet in some areas. Uh, and so what we have is essentially a baseline for what an oyster reef would look like if people didn't go out there and yeah. and, and take it, um, which is an issue because it is on the table presently because we share our lake with Louisiana. Um, and so basically the border goes right down the middle of Sabine Lake. So half, maybe a little more than half of the, the southern oyster reef actually belongs to Louisiana. And uh, it, it is uh, on the table presently for um, for oyster harvest. Um, which in um, you know, our opinion and, and, and most uh, every fisherman that I've spoken to in, in Sabine Lake is uh, it's not something that we, we'd like to see happen uh, because it, it has been uh, shown to be essential fish habitat. You know, fish love structure. It provides uh, prey for them, provides shelter for them. Um, it's uh it's it's really the the biological inheritance of of the people of uh, of Sabine Lake, and uh, we would like to see it uh, kept as is. I heard rumblings of that at a recent meeting, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, I mean, I, I certainly got the impression that uh, Texas wants to maintain the reef status quo, mm-hmm. and yes. um, you know we'll see. Yeah. That maybe maybe is something that 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 you know. CCA advocates for. I don't. I don't. We'll just see how that goes down the line. But um, yeah, we're all about keeping that, mm-hmm. keeping that reef natural. Because uh, the, the what you would what you would it. lose in terms of, um, of fishing opportunities and, um, and 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 other ecological services, actually, it 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 far outweighs uh, what you would you know the what you would gain by taking a, a few oysters. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. it's not a large reef. It's four or five square miles, so it wouldn't take long to to harvest it to oblivion. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, what, if that thing ever opens up, you're going to have about a hundred 
boats out there all at one time. Just doing circles. circles. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Wipe it out really quick. I've seen so. it in Galveston Bay before. It's not a yeah. pretty sight. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, Kirk, you'd mentioned you volunteered before you got started, and um, only that caught caught my attention because I just got through doing a, an interview with a young kid last night that wants to get in the field and I, one of the things I told him was uh, you know get get your name out there let people know you and start volunteering at places and uh, I just want to get that point across to anybody that might be listening that um, there's opportunities with Texas Parks and Wildlife mm-hmm. to 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 volunteer or to work as an intern during your college. CCA funds a lot of interns for us every year. That's right. They, some of them have gone on to work for the department. Some have decided that maybe that's not what they wanted to do. Yeah, it's valuable either way. Yes. It, so if you want to volunteer, um, you can actually go online and sign up uh, um, as, as a volunteer. I can't remember the name of the website. Um uh, but if you just, someone just Google Texas Parks and Wildlife Volunteer, it would direct them to a central website, and then they, they go in there and select where they want to volunteer and kind of yes. what they're interested in, and then um, the um, I guess the office manager or or whoever's in charge of that particular field station would get the notification that hey, we have this volunteer that wants to come work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how that if that works. If y'all have seen it work that way, but I know that at C-Center, that's how, kind of how the way that it Usually here, people just, they'll just call and ask, and um, and usually we have, you know, uh, you know, we always have sampling going on, and they can they can come out and help if, if they're interested. What's the best time? Like, when do you really benefit from having them? When would you? During gillnet season. <laughs> <laughs> and gillnet season in the spring starts when? That's the second week in April. April? April. April. And running through June and then second week of September through the second or third week of November. Okay. That's yeah. that's our crunch times. Mm-hmm. And how many are you setting? Is it 40? What's the number? We, those we set uh, between weeks? three and five uh, a week. Uh, yes. Three and five weeks. That's about, For 10 that's weeks. about 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. All right, so compare that to what, Carrie, what other states are doing, and and why is this um, 40-year data set so important? Well, what's impressive about this data set is, um, is its consistency. The way they, uh, someone had the right idea 40 years ago when they took the base systems and they, they broke them down into grids, and they, they realized the importance of having uh, a randomized sampling design, and uh, and they did it for the different base systems, uh, and and do it consistently in the same way. Uh, I, I I can't stress how important that is in in terms of looking at long term trends because you you want as little variability as possible if you really want to see what's going on in the systems. And um, I mean I don't want to. I don't want to talk bad about about other state sampling programs, but that's a rare thing. Yeah. Uh, it's really uh, you don't find many worldwide uh, data sets that are that are this consistent and that have gone on for this long. And yeah. so, when other when other entities or other states ask Parks and Wildlife to do something that strays from that, I mean that's a pretty big ask. I mean, you can't. 
Typically, we try to accommodate if if uh, collaboration um, if uh, if it if it can just piggyback it onto uh, what we're doing already, okay. as long as it it doesn't take away from the the man hours that that, that we we have to put forward to go out and accomplish our sampling. Uh, we 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 strive to to collaborate because um, that that's that's what science is all about, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. Um. Let's see. Well, let's get to uh, what Kirk wants to talk about. Let's flounder. talk about flounder. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite fish to catch. It's my favorite fish to eat. I'd like to see us produce enough flounder. And talking with Jeff Bear at one of our last meetings, he was telling me some things that I found pretty interesting about stocking they were doing in Japan on flounder. And he said they've determined that they don't need to stock as many flounder as you would redfish. And because of the way the flounder is, he's a, he's a bottom fish. And he's, if you stock him, he's going to go down and lay on the bottom and get camouflaged other than swimming in the midwater and getting preyed upon. So, Yeah, um, what, they, what they did um, and what they're doing in Japan is they're releasing uh, larger fish. I think they're 90 millimeter average uh size fish so that's a big finger length and um by doing that larger fish they have much higher survival rate mm -hmm. and so um you get a lot more bang for your buck by by doing it that way and i know that that parks and wildlife certainly has transitioned with specifically for flounder to trying to get them at least past metamorphosis and um and even bigger if they can if they have the space to grow them out and release those larger sized fish so um yeah when people look at the flounder stocking numbers that parks and wildlife is doing and they see that you know they released a hundred thousand one year or seventy thousand another year i think last year was one hundred eighty thousand fish um they're not impressed by those parks and wildlife people aren't impressed stock enhancement not impressed but you always have to remember that Okay, this is a different species. This is a different, totally, totally different, different. You don't need, you shouldn't need millions and millions of flounder to have an impact if, if you're doing it the right way. And that's what Japan has shown. Um, I, I think the number is 30% of their commercial harvest Whoa. is supported by stock enhancement. Wow. Wow. It's um, a pretty big number. And I don't know what their recreational fishing is like. If 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 they're easy, if they might even have a recreational fishery for flounder, I don't even know. But thirty percent of the commercial is supported by their stock enhancement program, and they have a huge program. And what I mean by that is they have a lot of like field stations just for stocking of flounder. You could say there are where we are with redfish is where they are with flounder. It's pretty similar. Wow. You were talking earlier about anecdotal. And in my sampling, I've noticed that on the colder winters we have, the next spring, I see a lot more juvenile, young of the year, flounder in my bag seines. In warmer years, I don't. So it's, to me, it tells me it's definitely connected to temperature. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, we know that. That's a fact. Um, scientifically proven that they, they need a certain temperature to survive during the state, uh, different stages of their larval cycle. So... That's what stock enhancement's for. That's what stock enhancement's for. Mother Nature. And um, 
to be blunt, it looks like we're screwed this year. <laughs> um, been wearing a t-shirt every day and it's November 17th. So, uh, it's, it's not looking good. We need, we need that cold weather to hurry up and get here. And, and we, we talked to Chester earlier today and I think fishing game put out a little email article about the migration being delayed or being canceled or yeah, canceled. You know, canceled said, yeah. You know, they may be right. I don't know. I think it's a pretty strong statement, but it's certainly not a normal again. Maybe this is the new normal, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more warm than I think we'd like well, to we've see. Got a, we've got a front coming this weekend because I was scheduled to go to a, a guided commercial, a guided flounder trip in Galveston Bay with my son-in-law and they called and canceled and said, no, we're going to have to make it another weekend. We've got 25 knot winds coming. And so maybe I'll catch you just it. Just keep, keep booking those trips and right. we'll get a cold winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, flounder, you've got one. You've, that's that's fake. But you've got a flounder hanging on the wall here. They're just such a unique fish. Scott, I thought you were flounder nut. But it looks like you're. Uh, there's mascot, people yeah. out there that are crazier than I am about them. <laughs> I mean, I do like them. I do love fishing for them. But uh, you know, there's people that are uh, that target them a lot off, more often than I do. Uh, I like to catch them in the springtime, actually, when they're coming back in. Uh, that's where I've seemed to have my better luck uh, through the years. But and that's thanks to Chester Moore turning me on that there's a spring run as well as a, a fall yeah. run. So yeah. uh, you know, but if if they don't leave, that run doesn't happen as well. Right. So that's uh, true. I never, I hadn't thought about that. You know, I mean, it, it, I've got a, my own theory on the upper end of Sabine Lake. I think some of them fish just move out to deeper water and they don't go anywhere. Because I've caught fish in in February that should have moved out and they, they don't didn't. All leave. And it's and you know, I mean, I'm talking good numbers and keep catching them in deep water on ledges in the intercoastal. And it's like, man, these fish should be gone. And previous years prior to that, they weren't there because it's places I catch trout. And, you know, you catch one by accident, then all of a sudden you start catching two and three and four, and, and you develop a pattern. And, you know, with the technology, you go go back now and look, and I mean, you're actually fishing, fishing a true ledge that they're just stacked on. And a matter of finding it, dropping the bait down there to them, and, and, and catching them, you know. And don't get so, off of it. I mean, no, just st working. stay right there, work right there. And if they're not biting, just stay right there or come back to it when that tide changes because that's all it water takes to movement. trigger them. Yeah. You know, you may be fishing it and you not realize that you may have, wa you have water movement on top from wind, but on bottom it may not be moving. And you come back an hour later or whatever, look at your tide chart, and that little instant turns it on. And it could be a ship coming through could turn them on. Mm -hmm. do, you look, do, you look, do you fish more incoming or outgoing? I mean, what's your – I prefer an outgoing, the beginning of an outgoing, and I like to fish most of it, but I seem to have more success when it first starts, when that bait first starts flushing out. Uh, I will fish an incoming tide if, if that's what's what's happening, but I seem to have more success on an outgoing tide. Uh, and on the south end, it's, it's probably the opposite for me. During the fall run, especially when the tide starts coming in and bringing in the the yeah. bait from the warmer waters down south by the jetties and they come up into the channel and start dispersing mm -hmm. and uh, some of my spots may only be 20 foot across where the where the flounder is sitting near a, a good drop off uh -huh. where they can find shelter or whatever they like being able to escape the deep water i believe do you know where those drop-offs are, or do you go out and find them? Like, uh, talk to a guy that goes out and he throws out, like you said, like a 5 eighths weight, and he drags bottom. Because he doesn't, I guess he doesn't have a 
depth finder. Depth finder. Yeah. So he, that's how he finds them is by dragging a weight. Like I go out and, with my depth finder and scout for spots because you get a, a good spot and then pretty soon everybody sees you there. And before you know it, you go to your spot and you've got <laughs> six people on it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to have a, a backup plan. But, uh, yeah, that's basically the program. Gary, do you get to do much fishing in this new job? I have not yet. Uh, the part of the, the job description was multiple changing priorities. Whenever <laughs> so, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm. He's uh, doing a bang up job, by the way. <laughs> well, that's good think, to hear. But I'm, I, I will get out and and uh, and, and do some more. more I used fishing to fish a lot more before I worked for Parks and Wildlife, and then when I started working with Parks and Wildlife, my fishing was, unless I was getting paid to do it, my fishing just cratered. <laughs> And now I'm getting to go out a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just bought a house out on High Island, so uh, 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 half my time is spent here, and half of it's been remodeling my my bathroom. So, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so the joys. As soon as all that's over with, I'll yeah. I'll get a little more. So that's a little bit of a drive. Yeah, it's about a 55 minute drive one way. So yeah, but it's not too well, bad. That's worth it. I mean, to it be is, there. and it's a beautiful drive. You get to you go through a lot of wide open marsh. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's really nice. As long yeah. as they can keep the road maintained. and mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> No storms, please. Yeah. Um, so that just bring, makes me think of something else real quick. Uh, I guess this would be for Kurt and Scott. Um, have you all seen this system change since Ike? And, and well, Rita, I yeah. mean, what's ha- – I, I noticed a change. Uh, some of our back lakes were scoured. And places where we had previously done bay trawls, we couldn't do them because of the stack up of mud. It it shifts shifted the habitat around. And for a couple of years after Ike, we had I would say increased catches, and now it's tapering back off as far as shrimp trawls, as far as shrimp and invertebrates. Are you seeing as far as fishing? Yeah, you can tell the the, you know the couple years after Ike and Rita, for that matter, uh, the fishing was a lot better. I think it brought a lot of fish in. Um, I mean, I caught after that. I caught mangrove snapper in the intercoastal north of the lake, Uh, and I don't mean just one or two. We're talking eight or ten, twelve. And at the time, I didn't know what they were. I kept one. Found somebody like, how many of them did you catch? And I said, well, you know, eight or ten. They're like, you need to keep all that you can catch because those are snapper. And that's all it took, you know. <laughs> Went back, and I was able to catch a few more. But it, that far north, you just didn't see it. And, right. and that's the only thing I can contribute to. But like Kurt said, the mud moved around. Uh, on the north end, I feel like we had a few few more uh, spots opened up, like oyster reefs may be uncovered or some of the ones were covered up. You know, some of the ones that I'd fished, they're not big spots. But you knew there was oysters there or in the area were no longer there. And then you'd, you'd be fishing another area. And you get hung up. Well, then all of a sudden you pop up oysters. Like, wait a minute, better mark it because that's something new. And and you come to find out you may be on the edge or you may be in the middle of it. It could be as big as the table we're sitting at, or it could be, you know, twenty, thirty foot across. But uh, there's a few places that I've noticed, you know, changes like that. And it, I think it changes every year to year because of your your water movement and everything else. Do y'all remember? Uh if the flounder fishery was good after Ike, because Wayne, he fishes uh, West Ga- uh, Galveston, Christmas Bay area. He said it was phenomenal that year after Ike. Do you remember back? 
to then, Scott? I mean, that was several years I'm trying to now. think back. There was a couple times that we had some good runs there. I, I noticed the redfish more. We had a lot more. To me, they seemed to be more juvenile redfish in the system. Uh, I don't really remember much about the flounder. It probably was about normal for me. I don't catch a lot of uh, summertime flounder. Usually my floundering is, like I said, in the spring and then this time of year in the fall. So I, I would say the peak of our runs were five years ago to the last two years have not been as good. Right. It's It's been in decline. But though for three or four years there, we had amazing runs, large fish. Yeah, I know the um, – I saw the presentation um, at the commission meeting on flounder and, and trout. It seems like trout are in pretty good shape uh, for most of the coast. But, yeah, there's definitely have to keep an eye on, on the flounder fishery for sure um, because because of the larval recruitment so bad. And um, I think the spring gillnets were down. Fall gillnets were pretty stable across the coast, but spring gillnets were in slight decline over the last two years. Uh, There's been a push recently to uh, try to um, make our regulations and uh, Louisiana's regulations consistent. Uh, across the board or just specific? To sp specific for Sabine Lake. Uh, uh, well, for all fish, so for all fish, for all trouts, reds, flounder. For flounder, the flounder, flounder. regulations, okay. sorry. Yeah, um, Louisiana allows a take of 10. And we uh, allow a take of, Texas allows a take of, of five, except for uh, from November 1st and, until December 15th. 15th this year, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's because the you know, there's a bottleneck in Sabine Pass, so mm -hmm. whenever the females are migrating out, you can just hang out right there and, and, and catch your, your, your limit of 10 if you're on the Louisiana side, which because we have a, a common water uh, regulations uh, with a Texas license, you're able to go over to the Louisiana side and, and do that. So there's been a, a push to try to. But you have to put in a Louisiana ramp in order to retain that t that yes, ten limit. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, that's the catch. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to have a Louisiana license to fish that side. You can use your Texas license. You can use your Texas license. Mm -hmm. I thought you had to have. A, has there that is, always been that there way? is a discrepancy in Louisiana, I believe, between what is if you. Call Lake Charles, they say, oh, yes, you can keep a Louisiana limit with a Texas license. But if you call Baton Rouge, they say no. So I told them, I said, you guys need to get on the same page here. So you don't have to have an out-of-state license to fish Louisiana waters? You no. can use your, I didn't know that. Up to the jetties. As long as you do not enter their bayous Dude, yeah. or rivers, it's okay. only the lake. Okay. But, yeah. And, and there's the a boundary cut in that intercoastal or the ship channel that they regulate from a certain point south. You, like if you fish the jetties, you have to have a Louisiana license is my understanding. Yes. Even if you're on the inside. Yes. So inside. if you're going into the marsh and into those, what is that, Madam Johnson Bayou and all yeah. that? You need a Louisiana license. You need a Louisiana license, license okay. to okay. do that. Okay. That makes sense now. Yeah. I'm recalling back to <laughs> some experiences. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's good for folks to know. Because I, 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 I thought if you cross the middle of the lake, uh, or you're on Louisiana side, you'd need a Louisiana license. So we're so. actually seeing Texas guides from Galveston Bay booking trips and bringing people to the Louisiana side of Sabine Lake. Catch their 10. And catching their 10. Oh, it's very common. Very, very common. common this time of year. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, I ran into a guide last year on the north end on a place where we catch flounder regularly in the lake. 
and he was talking to some people around there saying he had been there for 14 days catching 20 to 30 flounder per day and that's what he was doing every day he said i'm fixing to take my first day off in 14 days go back home and do something and I'll, but i'll be back and i'm like and he's been sitting right there every day wow and it's just it's just crazy because there there's no size limit i mean it's 10 no matter what size it can be a 12 inch flounder yeah, we put him in a box looking like a little pancake right they you think hope. that'll gain much traction trying to um get them to fall in line with what texas is doing that's a good question okay <laughs> that's a good answer <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll Your be interesting. Says it all. <laughs> because we sample both sides, we see and we do our creels on the Louisiana side also. And like last year, we started noticing an increase. People coming in with two and three hundred uh, sheephead off the jetties, large coolers full of sheephead. There's no sheephead number limit in Louisiana. Wow. Bag limit. So they've keyed in on that and. Mm-hmm. So what's a creel? Explain it. to people what a what is what creel is. In a creel, we we talk to people that have launched it at a certain launch and are coming back in, and we'll ask them questions like, "How long have you been out? And what lures did you use? Can I look at your fish and measure your fish? Um, you know, and um, different questions. And Carrie, why is that important? And how do you distinct distinct you know? make a distinction between doing krill surveys and that sort of sampling mm-hmm. and the uh, sampling you're actually doing on the water with the nets. Well, I mean, it's all important. Uh, and that that's another way to assess the, the, the populations, the population trends uh, based on what the anglers are, are pulling out of the water. Um, so it, it's, it's another, it's another view into the, into how the fish are doing. Um, and it's also a, a way to engage the public and uh and and get an idea we ask them how they enjoyed their trip you know there's all kinds of data sociological data that we get as well um and and you know just uh inform them in some cases if they don't understand the regulations we're we're there to to talk to them about that and then also to get an idea of um of uh, how the the fish populations are doing so just so folks know when 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 kirk or another technician or biologist comes up to you in a parks and wildlife uniform and asks can i measure your fish you should politely say yes because that information is going to be used for very important reasons and those guys are not going to give you a citation unless no i'm not (laughs) (laughs) now if if it says state police on the side of their truck they're going to say let me see your fish (laughs) they're not going to say may i they're going to say Show me your fish. Yeah. And you better say and yes. And you better say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so just to play it safe, you should say yes no matter yeah, what. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always um, – you guys, I, I'd like to hear a story or two if you all would be willing to share, but I'm always baffled at the experiences that or, – or the responses that people give to Parks and Wildlife staff when, you know, you're just out there trying to do your job, measure fish, and, and gather data. And you get some responses from some people that are probably pretty interesting. Yeah, I had one fellow told me, he says, I'll, I'll comply today, he said, but you really don't have the right, or the state of Texas doesn't have the right, to tell me how many fish I catch, can catch. Only God can do that. And I said, well, you'll have to take up that discussion with the game wardens. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I, I kind of sympathize with you guys because you're, it gets hot. Yes. And you're on the asphalt. You're, you're on, you know, it's 110 or, or more on some days. And um, you've been out there a long time and you've, you're just waiting on this one truck or, or boat to get back to their truck. And you're like, been out there. It's a long day. It's not an easy job to do. So um, just encourage people to take it easy on y'all. And Right. Give us a break. Give them a break. It only takes a couple minutes. Yeah. 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 And offer these guys a, a glass of water or a, a snack or something. <laughs> you seem to be suffering every time I see them out there. <laughs> uh, is there anything that, um, that you guys want to use this opportunity to, to talk about or, or get across? Scott? Well, I'll go ahead and mention uh, our CCA chapter meets uh, once a month with the exception of December, the second Monday of each month at Roberts Meat Market there in Orange at 6 p.m. If you're a if you're a CCA member or if you're not a CCA member and like to attend and like to see, attend and see what we're about, uh, feel free to join us. We're open, uh, women, children, you know, husbands, wives. It doesn't matter. We're not uh, we're not biased on anybody. So twice a month. Uh, once a month. Once a month. Once a month. Second Tuesday of each month. Second Tuesday of each month. Six p.m. Where? Roberts Meat Market and Steakhouse. Okay. They're on uh, Park Street in uh, in Orange. So that is. Um, do y'all do like membership drive meetings? We where do. You have a guest speaker come in. We generally have one of those a year. Usually it's February or March, depending on what's going on in the area. If there's a bass tournament or a redfish tournament. Only try to get those individuals to come in and talk. If not, we may get a, the local biologist or some game wardens or uh, maybe a pro angler or something to come in and uh, or a, a guide to come in and talk about uh, you know different items. Uh, we've had rod builders come in and give little demonstrations of what to look for in a custom rod and, and stuff like that. So uh, you know it's, we and we try to advertise that pretty regular through our membership. Yeah, uh, we're on Facebook. You can. Uh, Check us out on Facebook at Orange County CCA, and, uh, you know, we're there. We try to post what's going on, and uh, especially if we have an event, we try to post pictures and stuff like that. And you'll send out um, – they can give you, you their email address, too, and you'll, you'll send Yeah, if you give blast. us your email address, I'll, I'll personally blast you. Usually I'll blast whatever the office sends out. I have a few people I do that with that are not members, but they're interested, so it's kind of like when you first get started into something, you're still checking it out. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we do that, and usually, if they decide to join, they just the the emails come. And and y'all, when do you, your banquet is in it, September? It's or? it's in August this year. We've actually got away from September, and we were able to move to August, and we've even moved it up another week earlier. It's August tenth this year. Okay. So, uh, you know, we normally our tickets go on sale around June, May or June. So, uh, you know, we'll start pushing that. You'll be seeing flyers and stuff. We usually have a sportsman's raffle. Uh, we serve ribeye steaks, and uh, it's a good good time. We need to hook up Parks and Wildlife with some. Yes, sir. Some we tickets. we normally do the game wardens, but you know if these guys are interested in coming over and enjoying a steak, sure. we'll definitely uh, work with you guys and get you all a table. Yes, We'd love to have some honored guests in the room. Carrie, uh, you, uh, you're looking at your notes here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was gonna I was just gonna throw a, a shout out to the, uh, a program that we've been working in collaboration with the Heart Institute. Uh, for Texas A&M Corpus Christi, the Eye Snapper program, which is um, it's an effort to try to understand uh, the take of Eye Snapper um, uh, and correlate that with, with what we're seeing in our, our krill surveys. Um, it's a it's an app you can do on your on your your iPhone, which most everyone has now. 
uh, and you're essentially what we're asking anglers to do is uh, after they go out uh, fishing for the day uh, go into this app and record the number of, of red snapper that they're catching um, and that would go a long way to uh, helping um, people understand exactly uh, uh, how the red snapper populations are doing um, we've uh, we've been collaborating with uh, with some studies going out and doing long lining efforts and trying to uh, get a better estimate of uh, the, the red snapper populations around structure um, and um, this is another uh, component of uh, trying to understand uh, the, the, the how the red snapper are doing um, um, I'm downloading it right now okay as you were speaking I looked it up so if I if I mess up this explanation, just correct me, okay? Because I wanted to try to explain to people why that you you started to get into it, why it's so important, is because the snapper fishery is uh, managed, um, passed on nine nautical miles by the federal, the federal government. government within state waters. It's managed by the state of Texas. There's at least at least in Texas. Um, I'm not going to speak about other states, but in Texas, there's two sort of different management philosophies when it comes to red snapper. And to further complicate the snapper issue is um, it's managed differently for recreational and commercial fisheries. So uh, the commercial fisheries have and have had for a while really good records of what they're catching. And the fisheries management um NOAA can use that to those numbers to help manage the fishery. When it comes to recreational anglers, what they um, say uh, the wrecks are catching is most likely different than what's actually occurring. Mm -hmm. And what 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 you guys are trying to do with and and the Heart Institute are trying to do with Ice Snapper is to sort of kind of validate what we think recreational anglers are are taking get a it's, better hard number right yes. so you need that um, to manage a fishery you need to know what's being taken out of it and so that's why snapper is just so uh, the, the management of it's just so tricky because um, charter for hire guys don't have catch history rec rec recreational anglers don't have catch history but commercial guys do so they have a leg up on us, and we kind of need to catch up in that regard. Yeah, that's important Is that data. accurate? Yes, enough? that's okay. a that's a good explanation. Yes. I'm really good at dumbing things down. Because, <laughs> okay. It sounds good to me. So, <laughs> so and aside from that, I would just say you know TPWD is a, a government agency, but we are on your side. We we want the same thing that the anglers do. We want these fish populations to flourish, and we want people to enjoy the waters. And in fact, that's our our motto: is life is better outside. So couldn't agree with you more with that. And um, um, on a personal note, and and from CCA, just really appreciate what you guys do on on the water and in the field. Um, you don't get a lot of pat on the backs uh, or pats on the back. You don't get a lot of kudos. The pay's not great, um, but you do what you love. You do what you love. But you do what That's you love. When I talk to kids that are looking for career paths or whatever, I said, find your passion. Do what you love to do. You'll be better at it. Absolutely. 
That's right. And you guys are doing a great job. And um, Gary, congratulations on this position. Thank you. I'm enjoying myself. As long as you don't have to get mingled up in Menhaden, I think you'll be good to go. (laughs) I think it's too late for that. Any final thoughts? Anybody have anything they want to close it out with? Yeah. No? All right. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate thank the time. You. Y'all take thank care. Thank you, Shane. Thanks a lot. Okay, folks. Thank you again for listening. We hope that you're able to take some time off this Christmas to spend some time on the water with your loved ones. We have a pretty strong cold front moving in middle of this week, and it should give us that final push we've been looking for to get these flounder to start moving out of the bays and offshore. So we've been waiting quite a while for this one, so get out there and enjoy it if you can. Also, coming up over the holidays, we will perhaps take a break during the week of Christmas, so you might not get a podcast over Christmas week. Um, And then we'll pick back up with the New Year's. We have several really good guests lined up for 2017, so stay tuned, and as always, stay coastal.